Hey, good morning, church. Uh, can't believe it, but we are actually in the last message in this series called The New You 2.0. Each week, you know, I've talked about a portion of Scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45 and 49, where it compares the first Adam and the, what the Scripture calls the second Adam, which is Christ. That Once we return to God by putting trust in Christ, we are part of the second Adam, and that brings a different kind of image-bearing or development into our life. I want to start today by giving you a situation and imagine yourself, you're maybe sitting at home, maybe, maybe it's your child that comes to you or maybe it's a friend, uh, maybe it's at work that this happens or you know it could be if you're a student, you're on the playground or you're in a cafeteria, wherever you're at though, but the question comes to you, what is your view on life? Now, you know, initially this may kind of shock you, you're not used to giving getting these kind of questions every day, but eventually you you probably collect yourself and you try to say something. Now, reverse this for a minute. This is also a very interesting question to use if you want to start what I'm going to call an evangelistic conversation. In other words, you want to create a conversation that will lead to spiritual matters in the hopes that you might be given an opportunity in a calm, mutually acceptable environment to share the truth about God in Christ with someone that you care about in your life. So. Imagine, you know, what you would say, what is your view of life? Or you ask somebody else, what is your view of life? Now, you know, the person may say, and you yourself may say, well, gee, uh, what do you mean my view of life? Well, a clarifying, a set of clarifying statements might be, I mean like, you know, well, what is your view of why is there anything instead of nothing? Where did everything come from? Uh, why are we here? Where did we come from? Why are things as they are? Where are we going? What, what happens at death? So all these kinds of questions would be involved in a person's view on life. Now here's the truth. Each and every human being has a view on life, even though we might not be able to articulate it. It might not be crystal clear in the forefront of our minds, but we have a view and that view is heavily influencing every single part of our life. Now let's go back where we've started this series. Our, our man that was laying there in John chapter 5 in an invalid state, probably paralyzed, for what Scripture tells us is 38 years. Jesus encounters him. He finds him. He asks the man, do you want to be made whole? And the man gives him a very, you know, uh, exp uh, vast explanation of why he has not been able to be made whole. And then Jesus says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And of course, the man was instantly healed and he does so. Happens to be on the Sabbath day. He was carrying his uh, bed with him, which would have been considered work, which was a Sabbath violation. All right, Jesus later goes and finds him, and that's the verse I want to read you, John chapter 5, verse 14, because I, I believe it leads into our, connect, our question today, a new view of life, or what is your view of life? Jesus finds the man, John 5, verse 14, at the temple. It says, sometime later, Jesus found him in the temple and again spoke to him, take a look at your body. It has been made whole and strong. So avoid a life of sin or else a calamity greater than any disability may befall you. Why would Jesus say that to him? It's really interesting. It, it at least hints at that the man is thinking about, what am I going to do with my life now? You know, for 38 years there were things that I was helpless to do. 38 years of his life, he was paralyzed, it appears. So now what is he going to do? I mean, he could have been thinking, man, I have a lot of living to do. I've got, got a lot of things I need to make up time for. There's a lot of experiences that I've wanted to have that I haven't been able to have, but now I can, and I'm going after it, you know, with all of my might. 
maybe he was thinking, and we can only hope, this God that I never knew was so kind and so good and that cared and about me or that knew me. He has now healed me. He has given me a new lease on life. All I want to do now with my life is learn His ways, His will, His plans, His purposes. I want to follow Jesus. I want to learn the truth about God and the truth about life. We don't know. We don't know what this man does with his life, but it's an interesting thing that Jesus warns him don't go throwing yourself into a sinful life, or if you think it was bad being paralyzed, you could bring something even worse upon yourself. It, it, it sort of sounds like Jesus knew the man was thinking about the way he was going, getting ready to invest his life. So I want to do this. I want to look at just two diverse views of life, and I think that these diverse views, these two, cover the vast majority of human beings on the planet today. The, the first view is this. People view life, now, now again, this is not always conscious, but it's, it's tucked away and it still uh, influences everything that we do and the way we develop, I might add. The first view is life is an individually designed experimental experience. In other words, it's my life and it's mine to do with what I want, uh, to experiment and just experience things, just try and see what I like. So the first view it's an individually designed experimental experience. You can't tell me what to do with my life. I can't tell you what to do with yours. It's, it's owned by you as an individual. Mine is owned by me as an individual. You get to experiment. I get to experiment. And we just sort of see what experiences we like or don't like. That's one view. That is a highly popular view. In fact, I would tend to say the vast majority of the 7.5 billion people that are alive on earth today, knowingly and unknowingly, that is their view of life. Let me share the second view. Life is a divinely designed developmental experience. So the first is it's an individually designed, I just make it whatever I want it, it's an individually designed experimental experience, but the second is, no, 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 it's a divinely designed, God designed it to be a developmental experience. Life is a divinely designed developmental experience. Two very contradictory views. Each one is going to evoke tremendous influence on the quality of our life, the content of our character, the contributions we make or don't make during our time on this, this journey on earth. So let's look at this first view a little bit because it's a very important view because it gives us an understanding of people that we will interact with. These are bright people. These are nice people. They're not, they're not always terrible people, so please don't misunderstand. But they are people that believe, all things considered, their life is just an individually designed uh, experimental experience, and we're just looking for whatever we want. It's up to us. So when, an, when we have that, that view of life, it leads to what I'm going to call the desperation cycle. Now, I'm going to give you a breakdown of the desperation cycle, then I'm going to take you to some passages of Scripture that unfold this. But the desperation cycle goes like this. Because I know I'm going to die, I have a fear of death. Now, it's not always in my mind, but I know it's a reality. Because I know I'm going to die, but I don't know when I'm going to die, and I don't know what happens after death, I'm time-bound and sense-governed. I can't see past the, the death. Because of that, I, I'm uncomfortable with it. I, I know my time is limited. I don't know when this existence is going to end. That, that creates the fear of death. So in this desperation cycle, the fear of death prompts me to pursue, first of all, self-preservation. 
because I know I'm going to die, but I don't know when, I want to live as long as I can. So self-preservation becomes a tremendous driving force in my life. The second one, it's an equal drive. It tends to develop a little later. It's self-gratification. I discover very quickly that certain experiences in life, they're pleasurable and other ones are painful. So I set out, since I don't know when I'm going to die, but I know that I am going to die, I set out to stay alive as long as I can and to have as many pleasurable, enjoyable, profitable experiences as I can and avoid the painful Loss, loss experiences as I can. So, so this is the cycle, this desperation cycle. Now, when I'm pursuing self-preservation and self-gratification, it produces inevitably sinful, destructive decisions or sinful, destructive living. It's just the way it works. We, we experiment. We try things. We don't know how we're designed to live. Therefore, we stumble onto things as we experiment. I don't know how long I'm going to live as self-preservation, but I'm going to get as much pleasure as I can, self-gratification. Let me show you some verses now that pin this down. The first is in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. It says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, the he is Jesus, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now this is an interesting verse. It says that, that Jesus' death was meant to free us from the power of the one that holds the power of death, which it says is the devil. What does it mean that he holds the power of death? That doesn't mean that uh, you know, he's like the Godfather and he can just put out a hit on you and I anytime he wants to kill us. No, that's not what it means at all. It means though that because sin produces disintegration and death, and, and death and sin is a part of the human race experience now. Death is a part of our experience. Satan uses this as a tool. He knows that we were beings made to live eternally, and so this is an irregularity. This is an, an anomaly for us. We're uncomfortable with death. And so he uses it as a tool to because of the fear that it generates, causes us to be slaves, slaves of the fear. And I've just read to you the cycle it produces. The fear of death prompts the pursuit of self-preservation and self-gratification, which produces sinful, destructive living. The second part of this is experimentation. I'll read you a portion of Scripture from the book of Ecclesiastes. And it was written by King Solomon. And King Solomon, you have to understand, was considered the wisest man. God gave him a gift of wisdom, wisest man that ever lived. But he misused the gifts that God gave him and for a season in his life went far, far, far away from God. We're all capable of doing that. We're all capable of taking the gifts and the blessings that God gives us and misusing them. And Solomon went through a period in his life, actually toward the end of his life, where he did that. And the writing of Ecclesiastes is kind of a charting of the conclusions and experiences that he had. Listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. I said to myself, this is King Solomon, who was the, the wisest and the richest king probably ever. He says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. I denied, verse 10 says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. I will test you with pleasure, says Solomon, to find out what is good. Solomon's criteria for what's good and what's bad are what gave him pleasure. Now, now, this is not the criteria that 
God backs. God makes it very clear that He designed us in a certain way. We're made in His image. We, we have the capacity to experience life on the level that He does. But if we don't live like He does, we cannot experience life on the level He does. So that's the differentiator between good and bad or good and evil. But Solomon said, I'm going to test this thing, and if it gives me pleasure, then it's good. Uh, it's kind of like the Sheryl Crow song. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Not true. Not true at all. He, say, he goes on to say, I didn't deny myself anything that my heart desired, any, any pleasure. So he threw himself into an experimental cycle. Now, we may not do the same that King Solomon does because we may not have the opportunities that he had. But if you look back in your life, and I can certainly look back in my life, we just sort of instinctively, we just start experimenting with things. Why? Self-preservation, I want to live as long as I can because I don't know when I'm going to die. But self-gratification, I want to find out what brings me pleasure. I want to have as much pleasure as I can and avoid as much pain as I can. And so we experiment, we try things. And some of us, some of us right now today, it's been decades, but, but we opened a Pandora's box way back, way back in our life. And some of us are still experiencing tremendous mental, emotional, maybe even physical repercussions, relational repercussions because of something we considered good at the time because it brought us immediate initial pleasure, but it later turned out to bring great, great long-term uh, negative effects. Let me give you experience that I had in my own life, kind of a funny one at that. Um, I, I was um, up till age six. I lived, was brought up, was raised by my great-grandmother and great-grandfather. Um, all I knew was she was nanny and he was daddy. That's it. I didn't even have a word from mother. I know this sounds crazy to you. It's a true story. When I was six years old, the woman that lived upstairs in her apartment building in 3rd and F Northwest, she took me away. It turned out she was my mother. She took me away and moved me to Southeast Washington. Bad experience. Anyway, I'm now a six-year-old kid living in Southeast Washington with a woman called my mother. And we're living at 27th Street Southeast, right, right off the corner of Pennsylvania Avenue and 27th Street. And I'm outside the apartment building. I guess I just didn't know what to do with myself. And I meet this little kid. His name was Bobby Young. And I had not had a friend to that point in my life. My only friend was Nanny, my great-grandmother, and Daddy, my great-grandfather. So this kid starts playing with me, and we're doing all kinds of things, having fun. And, and so we find this big patch of, of brush that was uh, at the edge of the apartment development, right beside an A&P parking lot, A&P food store. And so we pull these leaves off all these bushes and we're, we're burying ourselves. We just thought it was the greatest thing. We're burying, you know, taking turns burying ourselves in these leaves as we're pulling them off. Oh, man, I, I went home that evening and I thought, this is the most fun I've ever had in my life. You talk about a wonderful experiment in life. I didn't know what it was like to have a playmate, a friend. But then later that night, everything started to change. Late at night while you're sleeping, poison ivy comes a creeping around. So says the song by the coasters, and so was my experience. Those leaves we were playing with, they, we were ripping off with our hands and burying ourselves in. It was, it was poison ivy, an enormous patch of poison ivy. I was covered. I mean, I, I looked like I had leprosy for weeks. So I learned very early in life at age six, that which can bring you pleasure, even euphoric pleasure initially, <laughs> may bring you great disproportionate pain in the resulting time. And, and, and so we've all had experiences like this. We experiment, we try things. We try to figure out what 
works. What brings us pleasure? Only sometimes to find out that we get what we want and we don't what we want when we got. So the cycle goes, this desperation cycle, experimentation, and then dissatisfaction, disillusionment, and disintegration. Because when we experiment and it leads us to live contrary to the way God designed us, whether we know it's contrary or not, it doesn't matter. When we live contrary, it brings disintegration mentally, emotionally, relationally, even physically at times. Uh, it's just the way we're built, the way we're designed. Listen to Solomon once again talk about how this disintegration sets in and death is its final inevitable result. And again, this fits into this desperation cycle. When I view life as an individually designed experimental experience, I'm going I'm to fall into this desperation cycle. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, Solomon says this, he says, none of us can hold back our spirit from departing. None of us has the power to prevent the day of our death. There is no escaping that obligation, that dark battle. It seems so wrong that everyone under the sun suffers the same fate. Already twisted by evil, people choose their own mad course, for they have no hope. There is nothing ahead but death anyway. So here's Solomon saying that, we can experiment with pleasure, we, we, can, we can do anything we want in life, but if we view life as an individually designed experimental experience, well, it all ends in death. And since we're sense-governed, if we're just going to go by what we can see, taste, touch, feel, smell, and hear, well, then we don't know what happens beyond death. All we see with our senses is, is the end, disintegration in this plane, in this dimension. It's over. And that's a very disillusioning thing because there's something in humanity, something in mankind that God put there to give us a, a notion of eternity. The same book of Ecclesiastes says that, that God has said eternity in our hearts and we're tormented with this thing of death. Listen, in this life, what we discover, even if we're like Solomon and we, we can you know, pull out all the stops in pursuing pleasure, we discover that we have desires for things that nothing in this life can fulfill. Our desires extend past anything that this world can possibly offer us. Why? Essentially because we're not here long enough. So that's the first view, an individually designed experimental experience. The vast majority of people that you and I will meet, the best and the brightest in some cases, that's their view of life. It will influence the way they live, it will influence the quality of their life, it will influence the development of their character. The second view, though, is this one, a divinely designed developmental experience. Please nail this down. If you're a Christ follower, you must keep this in the forefront of your mind. This life is not primarily to fulfill your or my dreams. It is not primarily to give us a happy day every single day, even though I hope we do have happy days every single day. It is primarily a developmental journey. It is taking me from my, myself as one point, the 1.0 version of myself and helping me to develop to the 2.0 version of myself in preparation for eternity. That is what God, our Creator, says in His Word. And, and this, this developmental, this divinely designed developmental experience, it all starts with the fork in the road of trust or not trust in Christ, our Creator. When you go back into the Garden of Eden, you know, that's what was disrupted. Trust in God was destroyed. Adam and Eve trusted God completely until Satan slandered God. They trusted Satan instead of God. They broke trust with God. 
God then had to very patiently start to win back our trust by revealing who He really is and that He's good all the time and that He is sacrificial loving to those that He has made. Now He's revealed Himself completely in Christ and He has literally, you got to hear this, there's nothing more God can do. Occasionally I meet people that say, you know, well, you know, can't God give me more evidence? Well, that, no, He can't. He has completely shown Himself as sacrificially loving and good and trustworthy. Now the fork in the road is ours. What are we going to do? Are we going to continue to distrust Him and live our own way? Or are we going to trust Him? Listen to the way this divinely designed developmental experience is meant to start. It's meant to start with the decision to put our trust in Christ our Creator. In the book of Acts, chapter 16, verse 11, the complete Jewish Bible version, it reads like this. There was a Philippian jailer, and after an earthquake had broken open all the prison cells, he was afraid that they would escape, and he goes to kill himself. But the Apostle Paul and Silas, who were in the prison cell, they had been beaten because of their declaration of the truth about God in Christ, and they had been beaten, and they were singing hymns as they were locked in stocks, the Scripture says in Acts chapter 16. And so this jailer is hearing these guys talk about Jesus, sing about Him, even though they had been beaten for speaking in His name. And then when this earthquake comes, he's terrified. He's ready to kill himself because he knows that his bosses are going to you know, torture and kill him anyway. So he runs. When Paul says, don't, don't hurt yourself, we're all here, he says this, uh, he asks the question to Paul and to Silas. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be rescued? And you have to understand when you and I read Scripture, it's not talking about hell. We, we, today we think everything is about heaven and hell. It's talking about sin. The word saved and rescued, it's the same word there. It's always used of being saved. They will call Him Jesus for He shall save us from our sins. It's sin that I need to be saved from. It's sin that's wrecking my life. It's sin that's wrecking our world. It's distrusting God that is the fuel of sin. So distrust must be replaced with trust before the power of sin can be broken in any of our lives. So they bring this guy out. He says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Complete Jewish Bible version, Acts 16, verse 31. They said, Trust in the Lord Yeshua, and you will be saved, you and your household. That, that Yeshua just means Jesus. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Other versions say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. Put faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. The reason that they, they differ is because the Greek word, pistis, it can be translated belief, trust, confidence, reliance. I use the word trust today because the words belief can mean anything. I could show you credentials you know, sufficient historic credentials, and you would believe I'm Randy Goldenberg. I lived the first 30 years of my life in Washington, D.C. But that doesn't mean that you trust me. They are enormously different. You know, so you believe I'm Randy Goldenberg, and I lived the first 30, year, 30 years of my life in D.C., but then I say to you, <laughs> empty your 401k, uh, take all the equity out of your house, uh, take everything out of your savings account, give me all the cash that you can give me, and let me have it for three years, and I will return it to you a hundred times what you give to me. What would you do if you trusted me? You see the difference between believing things about me and trusting in me? We are called to trust in the Creator of the universe, the one that proved His trustworthiness by sacrificing His life on a cross for us and for our sins. And He says that we must be willing to re-enter into the relationship with Him that Adam and Eve had before Satan slandered God and they broke trust with Him. They trusted God completely until then. 
Now God wants to restore that relationship with us. Listen, there's only, there's only three ways that God can get the universe to obey Him. And obeying God is the only way the universe can exist and everybody experience the highest quality of life. God can force everybody to obey Him, but then there's no free will. We, we're robots. He can use fear. He can threaten us. If we ever disobey Him, He'll immediately torture us or put us out of existence. But, but we'd, be, we'd be intimidated all the time and we would resent God. That's a very unpleasant way to live in fear. So the only possible way that God can get the universe to obey Him and it's pleasant to them and pleasant to Him, everybody's fulfilled and satisfied, is He wins our trust. He wins our faith. He doesn't rule by force. He doesn't rule by fear. He rules by faith. He proves Himself trustworthy, wins our trust, and because we trust Him, we want to follow Him. Because we trust Him, we obey Him joyfully from our own hearts. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. In this divinely designed developmental journey, the fork in the road, the crucial fork in the road is when will we make the decision to take that trust from being supremely in ourselves and putting our trust in Christ. And the evidence of who we trust in is who are we really following. Jesus said in John 10, 27, 28, He said, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Follow me means they learn His will and they do His will. They learn His ways and they emulate His ways. They learn His work and they throw themselves in His work. They live a life around obeying. They, they listen to the shepherd's voice. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they will never perish. So, we start this divine developmental experience with trusting again in our Creator. And that's a decision. We, we, it's a point in time where I say, I'm going to put my trust in you. You have won my trust, Lord Jesus. I'm going to follow you fully, freely, and forever because you have won my trust. I hope everyone that hears this message has done that. I'm not talking about the, these formula things, man. You know, I ask Jesus to come to my heart or I believe that Jesus um, lived a sinless life and was born of the Virgin Mary and He died for my sins and He rose again. Like, you can believe all that stuff and not trust in Jesus at all. You can believe all that stuff about me. Randy Goldenberg, I lived the first 30 years of my life in Washington, D.C., but you don't trust me unless you empty that bank account. Not really. I'm not asking you to empty that bank account. But you get my point? The difference between believing things about somebody and trusting in somebody? Okay, so the first step, it's trust. And now trust is then meant to lead into the developmental cycle or training. Um, there's a difference between trying and training. Now, trying is crucial, but trying is always going to falter, and that's why we need training. Listen to this verse, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, who he had left behind in Ephesus to kind of uh, fix some things, some turbulence in the Ephesian church. By this time, Timothy had been a follower of Paul for about 17 years, and he had been a follower of Jesus even earlier than that. So he was an experienced guy. But listen to this words that Paul says to Timothy. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. <laughs> I would have loved to know what the old wives' tales were. Anyway, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. He's saying, Timothy, and that word train there, we get our word gymnasium from a gymnasia in the Greek. He's saying, Timothy, you know what to do, man. Put yourself in training. Create structures in your life that will see to it that you develop to be godly, to be like God, to be like Christ. He says, train yourself, man. Train yourself to be godly. Timothy was an experienced guy. He knew what to do. It goes on to say in verse 8, for physical training 
is of some value, but godliness has the value for all things. Listen to this careful. Holding the promise both for the present life, best life ever in this difficult, turbulent world, in this present life, and the life to come. I need to be time-sensitive and timeless. We'll, we'll see that again later. So, now the Spirit of God says to us that we need to train ourselves to be godly. There's training, there, there's structure, there's technique, there's time invested. Listen, we, we, we don't automatically start living the way that God wants us or designed us to live. We have to learn the way first of all, then we have to try it, then we have to train, we have to keep at it. I'm, I'm going to give you more clarity on this as I go on in the message. So there's trust, then there's training in this divinely designed developmental experience. And then it finally brings transformation. Man, transformation is a beautiful thing. Transformation, it, it's authentically, I from the core of my being, my beliefs, my convictions about things are now so aligned with God's. I believe His, His will and His ways and His word and His work are, are just perfect. I love Him. I love His will. I love His ways. I love His work. I think about things the way He does, and I want to think more about them the way He does, and I, and I feel about things the way He does, and I want to feel more about them, and I, and I want to do the things that I know He would do. This is real, authentic transformation. It's not just uh, reformation, which is me conforming to a code of do's and don'ts. Uh-uh. It's me changing from the inside out authentically. I am doing exactly what I want to do, but what I want to do is the will of God. I, I see it. In its beauty, it's captured my heart, and that's all I want to do, and I want to do it better and better and better. That's real transformation. Listen to the way Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He says, now all of us, he's writing to those that have put their trust in Christ and are his followers. Now all of us, with our faces unveiled, reflect the glory of the Lord as if we are mirrors. In other words, we're looking at Christ because we want to be like Him and learn His ways and will and word and work. But in that process, we reflect His image to those that meet us. We're like, we're like mirrors. We're looking at Jesus, but the reflection coming through us is a, is a version of Jesus. It's a beautiful passage. It says, We with unveiled faces reflect the glory of the Lord as if we are mirrors, and so we are being transformed, metamorphosed into His image, 2.0 version of herself, into His image from one radiance of glory to another, just as the Spirit of the Lord accomplishes it. Now, I want to demystify this a little bit because I think one of the things that trips us up as Christ followers is we don't understand God's processes. God has ordained some processes. For example, you don't throw a seed in the ground and pray a prayer over it and have a 50-foot oak tree standing the next day. No, no, no. There's processes. So let me give you the transformation cycle. Here's how it works. We've looked at some of it already. It starts with trusting. We trust in Christ our Creator. We trust in His Word. If He says to, to stop something, we stop it. He says to start something, we start it. That's trying. So trusting then goes to trying. He says to this man, he says, rise, take up your bed and walk. Trusting Christ, he wanted to be made whole, now trying to do what Christ said to do, even though he didn't in the past have the power to do it. Trusting, trying, and then that leads to training. And that means this, that I find many times when I'm trying to do the will of God according to the Word of God, I have, I have counter habits. 
uh, I, I fail. I want to do His will, but I, I do it sometimes and then I fail. It's kind of like a two steps forward, three steps back. So that's where training comes in. I need patience. I need humility. I need resilience. I need to keep trusting that what God says I can do, I can do, but it may take me time to do it. It's no different than a baby learning to work. It's a walk. It's no different than us learning any new skill, whether it's picking up an instrument and learning to be a musician or whatever it might be. It takes training. I'm trying to do it, but I'm doing it poorly at first, but I'm going to keep at it because it's so valuable. I'm going to keep at it until I can do it better and until I can do it easily and until it then becomes a part of my character. And that's where tenacity comes in. I've got to stick with it. That takes humility to, to keep failing and failing forward. So here's the cycle. Trusting, trying, training, tenacity, and that brings transformation. Deep inner from the core level changes in who I am and how I feel. Now I'm still me. I, I, I'm still Randy. You're still whoever you are. But I am slowly becoming, and you are slowly becoming, this extraordinarily, extraordinarily kind, gentle, forgiving, loving, generous, caring, serving, contributing human being because I am more and more showing forth the image of my Creator. I'm still me, but the real me is emerging, and the real me and the real you is always meant to be a 2.0 Christ-like version of you and me. I want to close with reading a sentence to you and then giving you an illustration that I hope will, will, will really jolt you and seal this truth in your heart that, that our view of life matters so much. Here's the statement I want to read. Our view of life must be simultaneously time-sensitive and timeless. Simultaneously, at the same time, our view of life must be simultaneously time-sensitive and timeless. Time-sensitive meaning this, li listen, every second I have is a gift from God. Every day that I have, every hour, every week, every month, every year, every decade, they are gifts of God. They are part of my developmental journey and I do not want to waste any of them. They matter. Everything matters in this developmental journey. So I'm going to be time-sensitive. I don't know how long God's going to determine my journey is, but I'm also going to view life as a timeless being. This is critical. Unless I view myself as a timeless being, I'm going to fall into that desperation cycle where self-preservation and self-gratification are going to be the driving forces of my life, and they're going to lead me to, because of my fear of death, pursue reckless, sinful, self-destructive, socially destructive living. So I've got to be time-sensitive and timeless so that I don't get into that panic, that, that bucket list mentality. Now I'm going to give you an image, and man, I hope you can follow, follow this and uh, that it doesn't offend anybody in the process. When you, when you look up for what experts say uh, about what, what is the most critical uh, juncture or period in, in a human being's development, you, you read lots of different things. For example, many will say that the most crucial developmental era is from ages 1 to 5 or 1 to 6. There's some that will put it up to 7. And they say, man, that, that's where the most crucial development, if, if you get the right things then, then you're, you're good to go. That's most crucial. Then there are others that say, well, you know, early adolescence and then later adolescence, that's a crucial period too. Then there are others that say, oh, no, 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 it's when your cognitive faculties mature, you know, you're 20 to 25 and you start making lifelong decisions. And then they'll say, no, 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 it's, it's when you're 35 and 45 because then you get your objectivity and clarity and you know who you are and why you're here, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. So there's all these differences <laughs> about what's the most crucial part of the journey. And we need to think about this when we're 
discerning what our actual view of life is. Now, it's interesting to me that whenever you and I ask somebody how old they are, they will quickly tell us, well, I was born, for example, me, I was born on July 13th, and that's the day of my birth. And you and I will say, based on that day of my birth and whatever year it was, that's how old we are, right? But that's not the truth. No, 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 no. That's not how old you are. You are actually, in the vast majority of cases, you're nine months older. You're nine months older than that, okay? Because you know and I know for nine months approximately, we were very much alive. We were just in another realm. We, we, we were just, as it were, in, in another dimension almost. We were in our mother's womb. So whatever your age, you, you've got to add another nine months to that. Now, about what's important, the crucial part of the developmental journey. Let me ask you a question. Is the crucial part age one to five or one to six or one to seven? Is the crucial part uh, adolescence or older adolescence or young adulthood or middle adult? How about this? How about, how about conception? How about the millisecond that you and I were conceived in our mother's womb? If that didn't happen, you never get, I never get, to be one through five or six or seven. We never get to be a young adolescence or middle ad older adolescence or young adult or middle-aged adult. We never get any of that. Listen, what part of the journey, what part of the journey is crucial? Every part is crucial. Every part. You see, you and I, for nine months, we, we, we were developing inside our mother's womb and every part of that development was crucial from the millisecond of conception. It was all prep, get this now, get this, it was all preparatory, preparatory. Those, those nine months were preparatory in a different dimension with a different level of cognitive abilities. They were very, they were very diminished at that point. We didn't need them, but they were pre preparing, they were developing, they were growing, they were preparing us for where the vast majority of our existence was going to be. Listen, if the average one of us lives to be about 100 years old, this means that the nine months in your mother's womb, in our mother's womb, it represents only like 1% of our whole life. So that preparatory period was comp comparatively short, but crucial. Because if you don't get through that, you are not prepared for the rest of the journey. And if you have any questions about what I'm saying, just put this on Jesus. What was the most important part of Jesus' life? Was it his sacrificial death on the cross? Was it his resurrection from the grave? Was it his, his three and a half years of miracles and teaching and ministry? Was it his, his miraculous birth? It was his conception because if his miraculous conception didn't happen, he doesn't get nine months in his mother's womb. He does not get born. He does not live a perfect sinless life. He does not die a sacrificial death. He does not rise from the grave. It all counts. Now, what are you trying to get at, Randy? What is your point? My point is this. I am suggesting that this entire journey of ours, whether we live to be 100 or like Enoch, 365 years old, it is comparatively small and short compared to eternity. This life is a developmental journey. It's meant to be preparing us for the vast eternal journey. Is the development now, every part of it crucial? Yes, it is, every part. Does it mean that every single second that we can grow and develop and cooperate with God in this developmental plan matters? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. But at the end of the day, 
it is a developmental journey. That's why I keep trying to remind us, man, your best days are ahead. You have not lost your best days. Don't ever let that lie live in your heart. Don't you ever say to yourself or let Satan whisper in your ear, my best days are behind me. You and I have never experienced our best days. They're all ahead of us and they will go on forever. Cherish every aspect of this developmental journey. Let's be those that embrace this true perspective on life. It is a divinely designed developmental experience where God wants to take us from 1.0 version of ourself to the 2.0 Christ-like version of ourself. And most of it has to do with how we view circumstances, how we view God, how we view Christ, how we view ourselves, how we view others, and ultimately how we view life itself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, that from all eternity, your good heart, you had this awesomely beautiful plan to create beings that can experience life like you yourself experience it. And you looked at every aspect of it. You knew we would go wrong. You knew the damage we would do. You knew the sacrifice it would require to bring us back to trust in you. You knew who would reject you forever and who would trust you. And yet you brought it all into existence. Thank you for the certainties that you that start a good work in us will see it through and that we will wear the beauty the beauty that we've seen to some degree in this life, although through a glass foggily, the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of your eternal heart, our God and our Creator, it's in Christ's name we give thanks and pray that we can just, just speed up our cooperation in every area in this 2.0 developmental journey that you have for each of us. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.